Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. So we're good. You can see this is like this loft area with all these toys. I'll I'll show you. This is really funny. This is my my dollhouse from when I was a child. Can you see it? Oh my God. Yes. Cabotage kids. I got mine right over there. (laughs) (laughs) We're all just kids who grew up in the 80s. 30 years later, we developed breast cancer. Today, we're sitting in front of Zoom because of COVID-19 and we're social distancing sharing commonalities, stories, and inspiration. This is part two of our live stream podcast with Allison Teschler and Abigail Johnston. You can link to the first episode I'll have in the show notes below. But today I'll provide a little bit of a recap from last week and we'll dive right in. Yeah, I mean, between the three of us, we've, we've been on a lot of drugs. Um, five tre- I'm on my fifth line of therapy, which is actually, I sometimes cannot believe that I've been on so many treatments. Um, and that's because we don't have, there there are not very many treatments that are designed for us. Um, so the majority of the treatments that I've been on are, are designed for um, ER positive breast cancer. Um, that's what the trials are in. And they, you know, they do have some efficacy in triple negative. So they're basically throwing lots of stuff at me, things that are not meant for me. And and so it's one person once told me at a conference, oh, you triple negative people, you guys burn through treatments, which was a really terrifying thing to hear. I've been on a drug since this spring called Tridalvi. And um, this is one of the first drugs that is, is actually for people who have what I have. So um, it's for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It's one of the only drugs for us that exists today. Um, the only ones, the only other one that out, that's out there uh, right now is Tarsiva, but there's we still have a long, long way to go for all metastatic breast cancers, but especially triple negative, um, because you know the question, even the you know the question is what what's, what's going to be my next treatment? This is the one that I've been waiting for. But what's next? I have no idea, and that's and that's terrifying. I have no idea, and we're losing people all the time. Um, we just lost a member of our community. Um, last week, I'm um, Kiera, who some of you might know, and she lives with the disease for a number of years, um, but she had metastatic triple negative. Um, so the the treatment options are not sufficient. They're not sufficient for any of us. Um, there are people dying of all sorts of metastatic breast cancer, but um, but it's especially challenging for for triple negatives. So we just we have we have many many fewer options, and, and what and way longer to go as far as clinical development. So I was treated on the ACT treatment that you mentioned, and oh God, we're not even going to talk about that. Um, I was also (laughs) treated with Herceptin and Progeta because I was HER2 positive that some thought, and then come to find out that I was also HER2 negative after my surgery and was given Zolota. So I was given, I think, all in all six different types of chemotherapy. So there's a lot of toxicity happening through this body and I'm still not happy about it. Um, to this date, I am on letrozole plus a Lupron shot because I haven't had my ovaries removed just yet. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. I'm not having kids, but like I just 
I don't know if I want to go through another surgery right now. Though I heard that the surgery is easier than the shot. <laughs> but um, that's another conversation. But all of this to say, you know, we go through so much. And now that I'm being checked for everything else, whether it's diabetes, pre-diabetic, cholesterol, um, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, you know, you mentioned metformin, et cetera. I almost want to be like, I'm just done. I just want to stop taking these drugs because I don't want to be taking more drugs to prevent the side effects of these drugs. And the way that you expressed this, Abigail, was like, you're taking this and you're doing everything you can to make these drugs work. So how do you, just putting you and I on the spot here, how do we reconcile that type of situation? How, you know, and and, and I look at you too, also Allison, where I feel like some of the triple negative breast cancer thrivers are like, I would give anything if there was letrozole or an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen. And okay, deal with the joint pain. You're not going to get cancer. Keep taking it. And I'm like, I can't keep taking it. It's driving me crazy. And so I think this is also another elephant in the room where we're talking about quality of life. And, you know, it's not better or worse or what works for you versus me versus the different side effects that we all experience. But it's, I think the three of us here on this call can all go in three different directions about the best course of action. So I want to throw that out there as one question. My second question to you all are also um, taking all of the scientific information and language. How does the layman person talk to their oncologist about metastatic breast cancer? How can they advocate for themselves about what their next line of treatment should be, how they are doing, and what like, what should they be doing so when they are talking to their doctors, they feel empowered? Welcome to the conversation. Um, yeah, I'll take the second question um, about how to be empowered. I don't know if I have an answer to the – I don't have an answer to the first question. It's so personal, um, just, too. So. Yeah, it's so hard. Um, but I don't know. I think, like, I guess my quick answer to the first question is the only – I think I've, I've exercised a lot over the, the last 10 years or 12 or however long I've been dealing with this and, and just take like exercise and really good self-care. Um, getting enough sleep has helped me to manage through the challenges with the different drugs, but I don't know if I have any, any, any other answer, but yeah. that, um, but how do you talk to your doctor about, how do you be an advocate for yourself? Um, I, I think it's very much about, um, he, like being aware of what's going on in your body and how you're feeling. And um, because as Abigail mentioned, the tumor marker is um, a, a leading indicator. It's a one way that we monitor how you're doing, but there's so much of a subjective component about how you're feeling and what symptoms you're having. Um, so you really need to speak up about that. Um, so I had, I will say, I had a very tough time on, on peak ray. It was very, um, and, and usually I've done, like, I, I haven't had a tough, tough, I, I've done, I guess, better than average on various drugs, just in terms of, like, being able to manage them. But that one was my, that was a real doozy for me. I felt like it was, like, literally a shit show for me, literally, because it was, like, nonstop diarrhea. Um, and, I, you know, I couldn't, like, get a handle on it, regardless of what I did. Um, so it just you know, at the end, it just wasn't really working for me. And 
they kept on taking me off of it because the diarrhea was so severe. So I'm actually not really sure if, if it was that the drug didn't work for me or if I, if I just, it didn't work because I wasn't taking it. Um, but anyway, you have to be very, um, I mean, just advocate for yourself, like let them know what you're going through. Cause your, your doctor's not going to know about your shit show and your, at your house if you don't tell him or her about it. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's, you know, being, you know, f- clear about what you're going through. I mean, not feeling like there's anything off limits. I mean, cause it is, it is a little bit embarrassing to, to talk about things like that, but, um, but, but they want to know. So, um, yeah. And like, and another thing for me was, so one of my other symptoms has been my neck, um, which I can, I don't know if anyone wants to see. I don't know how well you can see it, but anyway, my neck has been a site of, that's where my cancer shows up. So that was where it showed up when I was re-diagnosed in 2018. Um, and, and it's sort of like the barometer of how my, of how my drug is working because when the drugs were failing, like about a year from now, it blew up like a giant blister. It was horrific. Um, and and I guess that'll be a whole other story because then, then actually Picre, well, I'll tell you this one because it's kind of fascinating. I mean, so the tumor was really huge. And then I was on Picre. Picre killed the tumor. It literally blew a hole in my neck, like the size of a bullet. I had like a bullet hole in my neck because Picre was so effective, even though it was so horrible. It was so effective that within 10 days, it killed the tumor and left a left a um, hole like about this big, the size of a, of a bullet wound. Um, so. Anyway, that was like several months ago. Now my, now, now my neck is healing, but, but it's like sort of like looking at these indicators, like, well, what's going on with my neck? Like, if you know you have a problem area, kind of keeping track of like, what's going on with my neck um, and making sure they look at it. And, 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 you know, I go in, like uncover, like, look at my neck doctor, you know, what's going on. Um, so, so it's really, sorry, I kind of rambled for a while, but I think it's just like being, um, very cognizant about about how you're feeling mm-hmm. and and ex- expressing it um i i also agree with the you know abigail's point about being involved in the treatment decision because there are um factors to consider like quality of life and and other things so as much as you can know you know the more you can know the better but at the same time i don't feel like you know from for me right now with the what what what's the question of what my next treatment is is not necessarily answerable um yeah. so or not easily answerable so i'm not going to let that keep myself up at night because you i mean part of being a good patient is i don't know if i want to say good patient but no know, knowing when to when you can pull back and rely on your doctor i think it's all about yeah. you know if you have a doctor you can really trust and i and i know that that the question of what is my next treatment is not something that's really readily answerable right now and it's not something I'm going to choose to worry about right now and I know that um, I'm working with someone that when the time is right and we have to make that decision I'm in the best hands to make that decision well said that trust is so so key when when I before uh, cancer I worked um, uh, as a lawyer and I had um, a firm where we did mostly family law and I think that my relationships with my doctors is really patterned after what kind of relationship I had with my clients, which was I brought the law to the situation. 
they brought the facts to the situation. Mm -hmm. They were the decision maker, but I was advising them. I didn't have to make the decision. And certainly there were times when I pushed them to make a specific decision, but it, it was their decision. And so I, I look at my doctors that way. I look at my doctors as uh, consultants. And to some doctors, I've said that, like, you're here to give me advice. I'm the one who makes the decision. And not all doctors are okay with that. Not all patients are okay with being that upfront. Um, you know, I, my husband and I talk quite a bit about how that's a big part of my white privilege that I can do that. Whereas people mm -hmm. of other ethnicities simply aren't able, they're not even able to have that kind of um, relationship or that kind of decision-making with their doctors. And so um, when I'm talking to newly diagnosed patients you know, that is something that we talk about is that this is your decision at the end of the day. You have to know what the side effects are. You have to know how that's going to affect you. Um, but to Allison's point about talking about your symptoms, one of the reasons that it took them a few months to figure out that I was stage um, de novo stage four was because I was walking around on a five centimeter tumor and the in and the middle of my right femur and I never complained about it. I never told anybody Um about it. And it wasn't until someone made a mistake and checked the box to check my tumor markers when I started um, chemo. Um, I didn't quite get to the T part of ACT, but I got the A and the C, um, which was not a fun experience. But um, so they, they made a mistake. They realized my tumor markers were elevated. They did a bone scan and I had mets in all of my bones. But if I had said something about the fact that I was limping, about the fact that I was in pain as I moved around, that experience might have been different. Again, I'm not a person that goes back and, you know, is pulling out my hair that I should have said something. But I do take that to heart in that anything, even if it's a random one-off symptom, I tell my doctors mm -hmm. uh, because I don't know how that fits into the context of everything that they're working on. But one of the things that I have found to be incredibly helpful in managing my quality of life, in managing the toxicity that uh, comes from breast cancer treatments, because let's face it, we're literally getting poison into our bodies. And then we are having to deal with the after effects of that. I mean, chemo, frankly, I felt like they they took me as close to death as was humanly possible because that's how I felt. Um, so I try to have on my team different doctors that view things in different ways. The Western model of medicine is allopathic, right? So they they take your symptoms, you get a diagnosis. And then you take medication like that. That is the progression, um, for lack of a better word, in the allopathic model. In a functional medicine model, it's much more looking at the basic processes of the body. How are the basic processes of the body designed to work? And pretty much how do we get out of the way of how our bodies are designed to work or boost how our bodies are supposed to work. And so I find that that putting those two different perspectives together, sometimes they call that complementary medicine, that meets my needs in a much different in a much different way. Um I'm also 
very cognizant of the fact that one of the things about my medical oncologist that is not the same as others is that she's pretty flexible with, I mean, she might say something um, about what I'm doing if she thinks I'm going off the deep end again, which I'm sure she just shakes her head at me sometimes. Um, but but she does not, she doesn't get all exercised unless she needs to get exercised about it. I have, for instance, um, managed most of my pretty excruciating bone pain with medical marijuana. And that was a choice that I made early on that I did not want to um, get into opioids. I did not want to do that because um, I've always had a pretty strong reaction to strong medication. Um, and I have two kids. They are seven and five presently, but when I was diagnosed, they were one and three. And I could not be incapacitated. I could not be fuzzy. That's the way I feel on narcotics, like I'm like I'm fuzzy. So that is not a choice that all of my doctors have been very happy with, quite frankly. My medical oncologist, she would just kind of giggle at me. Um, she might she made a few comments. Um, but she never outright said no. Um, and the really cool thing is that now she's suggesting that people try medical marijuana because she saw what I was able to do. Um, so going back to that self-advocacy thing, we're, we're advocating for not only ourselves, but every other patient that doctor is seeing just by doing ourselves and doing our lives because and, and telling our doctors about that. Um, because the thing that I tell everybody, I've got different doctors that do things different ways. I tell all my doctors what every other doctor is doing. And I think that's so key that if you're ever doing something complimentary or alternative or whatever you want to label it to make sure that the, your, all of your doctors know what the other doctors are doing. Most of my doctors are in one system so they can see each other's notes. Great. That way they're sharing information. My doctors that are outside of that symptom, it, it's it's an extra burden on me to bring that information in. But I think that's so important so you don't do anything that's contraindicated. Um, and there are issues with medical marijuana, hormone positive cancer, and CDK4-6 inhibitors. There are contraindications there that can be dealt with, I believe, in my own mind, based on the information that I have gotten. That does not mean I'm a medical person, um, but... And I know that some people, because there are some contraindications, they just don't do it at all. And that's their choice. Um, I have chosen to use medical marijuana because I would have to take at least four prescription medications to replace what medical marijuana does for me. And what I don't want to get into is it was one of the things Allison alluded to is you take a medicine. So you have to take medicine for the side effects and then you have to take medicine for that side effect. And then you have to take different medicine for a different side effect. That confluence of medicines to me it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I do acupuncture. Um, I'll do some of the, um, I drink a tea uh, specifically that helps to detox my liver and my kidneys. It's made out of milk thistle and dandelion root. Um, and it's, it's kind of disgusting and it sounds kind of weird, but my liver function and my kidney function has been normal for three years. And, and that's not something that everybody can say. Is it, is it the, the tea? I don't know, but it seems to help and it's not causing any problems. So, you know, that's kind of some of those things with the alternative stuff, even medical marijuana, there aren't a lot of studies. Right. Uh, right. And so a lot of it has to be personal choice. A lot of it has to be, I do feel comfortable with this particular thing. 
Um, so, so determining how any individual person is going to deal with a medication regimen, pain, whatever other side effect you can think of, or just their lives in general, the more that I'm in this cancer space, the more I realize that every single person is so very different. And what I deal with or the level of pain that I deem to be acceptable is not going to be the same as somebody else. And when we get into this comparing ourselves to other people, oh, my situation is worse, my situation is better, I think we go down a rabbit hole that's only negative for everybody. Um, That's not to say that we can avoid doing that all the time because I think it's human nature to be like, okay, and, and, and this is what I think people who are early stage often do to people who are metastatic. They look at them and they say, okay, how did, how did they get to be metastatic? And they try to find the lifestyle choice or the, the, um, the, the germline mutation or the, you know, you didn't take your tamoxifen for the whole 10 years or 12 years or five years or whatever. I think that the, it's, it's seductive, that whole, okay, I'm going to find what makes that person different and then I feel safe. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to exercise. You didn't exercise. I'm going to stand on my head. You didn't stand on your head, whatever it is. And, and I think you, you go down a rabbit hole and it's not real and it's not actually going to protect you, but it, but it does maybe soothe that anxiety for the moment. Um, a little so bit of denial I, too, I think. Falls I'm, into I'm that. And, absolutely. You know, absolutely. There's, Gosh, I feel like we're approaching our 90 minutes and we can take another 90 minutes to talk about the comparison game. Um, You know, it's one of those elephants in the room that I did want to talk about tonight. Um, I'm being cognizant of my own time being a breast cancer survivor thriver that I do turn into a pumpkin (laughs) at some point. But, you know, I think you all bring up such great points about how can we talk about this? How can we advocate for ourselves? How can we figure out what's working for us. I'm now just going through and William can attest to this. I probably spent $200 on like Amazon the other day, just buying supplements and, you know, different types of essential oils and trying to figure out what works because I don't want to be on so many other medications to treat the side effects of the medication that I must take. And, and you know, just keep your eyes posted for these new blog posts of how it's all going. You know, it's so hard. It's trial and error. I mm-hmm. I want to find the functional medicine doctors. I want to talk to more people and get more opinions and really make this work. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we're looking to do. We're trying to figure out what that balance is that when we wake up in the morning, whether it's taking a pill or going in for treatment or doing absolutely nothing and just taking a walk, whatever that is that you do, you're waking up and you know that that is the best you want to be doing and you're satisfied. And to me, that's like when you can get to that realization of happiness and content, then then you're thriving. To me, that's that's what that is. I do want to... Take a moment. There's, God, there's so many topics I still want to talk about. And I do want to open it up to questions. So I thank you, everyone who is still listening to us live um, on the Facebook and then also on the Zoom call. I do want to give you guys an opportunity to weigh in and to ask questions. But before we get to the question piece, I do want to just acknowledge what we talked about earlier and the advocacy work that our dear friend Kiara was doing with her blog 
Beauty Through the Beast, all of the work that she was doing with a various number of organizations to bring light and awareness to metastatic breast cancer, to triple negative breast cancer, and some of her provocative photography and imagery that she was showing what it was like to be flat, to, um, you know, have reconstruction. I believe her story was it, it didn't go well. She ended up having to go flat, but then being able to take that to, you know, the runway in New York for the fashion week and in a variety of photographs to say that this is metastatic breast cancer. It is not the pink ribbon. It is not necessarily feel it on the first for awareness. I know we were talking about that um, in the side conversation earlier. And I'm like, you know, I post on social media, feel it on the first, but I'm preaching to the choir. Like I need to find a non-breast cancer Mm. choir to be like, hey guys, like you need to do the self-breast exams, right? So, you know, I... There's so much more work to be done and and I'm I, I'm a little speechless because I I will admit, like I'm in denial. Like I am speaking on this podcast with both of you. You both are stage four cancer havers, thrivers, survivors, living with metastatic breast cancer. And I I don't know why we don't have a treatment yet. I don't know why we don't have a cure yet for breast cancer. I I agree with you, Abigail. I think I quote you all the time when you told me if we start at the top and we can find a cure for stage four, the trickle down for three, two, one, zero will just happen. Why are we trying to prevent breast cancer, which I understand is like wonderful and get screened, don't get me wrong, but why can't we start at the top and work our way down? And and that's really where change needs to happen, advocacy needs to happen, where you guys and us, like everyone can go out and and get involved and raise awareness and share your voice and be be that pesky person. Like, you know, what's the phrase? The squeaky wheel gets the oil or something? Like, let's be <laughs> the squeaky wheels and there's nothing wrong with that. I love the squeaky wheels. So, um, you know, in memoriam, and I know a lot of us know Chiara D'Agostino. In fact, her and I shared the same alma mater and studied together or separately years apart, but through Middlebury College and in Italy and both have this fond appreciation for Italian language and literature. And I remember when I met her, I was like, wow, I'm meeting like a supermodel. I'm meeting a star, her blog and everything that she's doing. And and she came up to me and she's like, oh my God, I'm meeting Laura. And I'm like, me? Like, I'm just, you know, two years diagnosis. Like, what do I have? And But she was real and she was controversial, which I think we need to be. I think we need to be in people's faces. And, you know, I think, I don't know. She's, she's, she's someone we're going to talk about for, for decades to come. She she's a pinnacle. Laura, could I ask just one question? Go right ahead. Of your guest first off, uh, thank you ladies. This was just so incredible. If you were to give advice to the newbies coming on and we get a lot of of uh, newer diagnosed uh, uh, breast cancer uh, patients coming into the the circle or our community, um, and they're really, really afraid. 
what advice would you give them? And if you've already mentioned this, I apologize. I had to take a couple of calls. But um, it, it, if you could, um, just to give some advice to them coming in, because they, they're really looking for as much community help as they're getting from their, their, their primary caregiver or their oncology team. The one thing that I tell every newly diagnosed person is find a patient mentor. Find a person who has a similar disease profile to you, similar, whatever it is. Maybe it's home life. Maybe it's that you live in a similar place, but find somebody who's been through it who's a couple of years ahead of you. Because um, one of the things we, my dad and I moderate a stage four um, support group every other week. And we talk a lot about how this whole process makes you feel helpless. It makes you feel powerless. We we are powerless to a certain extent over cancer. I mean, we're completely powerless over cancer. And really in the metastatic community, we're simply trying to stay ahead of the cancer mutations. So having, and, and that that is so overwhelming, but the antidote to feeling that helplessness, that powerlessness is human connection. Having that person when you're flipping out at one o'clock in the morning that you can text that person or you can call that person and just say, I'm having a scan tomorrow and they know exactly what, what, you're, what you're dealing with. Um, so that human connection, but, but finding that person that you can say, okay, that person's a little bit farther ahead of me. I can see that it's possible to get farther. Now, the downside to all of that, just like we're talking about to Kiara, about Kiara, is that in the metastatic community, we lose 116 men and women every single day in the U.S. And so the the struggle, I, and I'm 100% aware of this, is that that patient mentor may not live for very long. And so that that the juxtaposition between having these very close, and in my experience anyway, you go deep fast with people in this community because so many of those boundaries or roadblocks or whatever you do to kind of keep yourself safe and, and apart from other people, those are gone, right? Chemo just obliterates that kind of stuff. And so you go deep fast and you start talking about death when you first meet somebody. Like that's not normal um, <laughs> outside of this, right? It just isn't. Um, and and so, so that it's so significant but, but the con of you're going to lose people, um, that is something that's very difficult to struggle with. And so um, one of the things that Allison and I are doing together is um, a project called MBC Grieving Together. And um, we're, we're working on the, you know, of course, we have these wild, grand um, schemes that that um, we're going to make them happen. But But just this idea that in this community, we lose people every day. We lose people all the time. And sometimes that person we've lost, like Kiara, not many people had met her in person. Not very many people really knew her the way that people who were close to her knew her. And yet they're grieving too. And Allison introduced me to this idea of disenfranchised grief. Grief mm. that is not something that is mainstream. Grief that is not something that has any rituals to deal with. Um, there's some great articles out there. A lot has been written on this. Um, and it's just been eye-opening for me. But things like um, a miscarriage 
or say you're adopting a child and the adoption falls through, or, um, you know, there's, there's these relationships, say a blended family and you lose touch with say a stepchild. I know I'm talking all about parent and children relationships. There's plenty of, of examples of adults too, but the, these grief things that it's not like there's a funeral and you bury the person. And then there's a place where you can go lay flowers. Um, there's that. And there's this pressure to be done. Like, okay, you can grieve for a couple of months about that, but why, why is this still a thing? And, and that to me was, was something that was really difficult for me because you also have the piece that when you know somebody in a certain context, social media, never met them in person. There've been people, I mean, it's like, I never even had a personal conversation with them. And yet I was so invested in how they were doing that then I had this sense of loss. So that is something that we deal with a lot in the in the metastatic community. You know, I know that other people deal with it too, but this is our this is where we're starting. So we have a Facebook page, we have a um, a website, um, the Facebook. Um, sorry, not a page; it's a group. Sorry, <laughs> we have this Facebook group, um, and I have a, a dear friend who's a grief counselor, and she's helping us moderate it. And where we've got these albums for each person who has passed, and we're talking about these people and their, their memories are staying alive and we're honoring their legacies and we're continuing their projects. And, and it's really special mm-hmm. that we have the ability to do some of those things. And it's completely different from what their families are doing. And mm-hmm. it's a completely different way of honoring their memories than that, than might be a traditional right. um, so eventually we want to have a, a place um, like the Vietnam wall where it's like, that's where you go and the names are there or whatever. And then we're going to have smaller versions of that, similar to the traveling pieces of the wall um, at local cancer centers. And, you know, having those physical things, um, there's going to be a poll that's coming out um, with an article of mine mm-hmm. about disenfranchised grief on advancedbreastcancer.net because we're trying to drill down and get to the point of what's our thing? What, 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 what exemplifies somebody who's living with metastatic breast cancer? I, I don't know what that thing is yet. So, so I'm hoping everybody will vote. We, we've got anchors, we've got sparrows, we've got dandelions, we've got wind chimes. We wanna have a thing um, to, to really tie a lot of this together so that it's something that's talked about uh, and I'll end on this. I know I talk a lot. I do. I talk a lot. Um, I did tell everybody like yell at me and make me stop talking. But um, I think that grief itself is something that we're not comfortable talking about. And I, and I noticed this when I was breastfeeding and it was just, you know, you don't see people breastfeeding. There are so many things that we've lost in our culture that were normal that are normal, are normal biological functions, feeding your child, dying, you know, being born. These things used to happen in full view of the community. And I, you know, there's lots of reasons that that's changed. I, I'm, I'm aware of that. <laughs> um, safety is, is one of the big things. But um, we're disconnected from the normal, natural changes in, in life, <laughs> including menopause. Um, so there's all kinds of things that, sure. that we don't talk about, but death is one of those things. And so one of the, I, one of our goals with this project is to help give people a language to talk about it, help give people rituals to, to handle it, help give people a place to talk about it. 
because otherwise it can be devastating and it can be overwhelming and it can mean that people draw back from the community and lose out on human connection. We want to make sure that people can do that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. I will ask you to send me all of those links so that everyone listening tonight can have resources and we'll post that in the podcast as well. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been such a rich conversation. I appreciate both of you going into such deep, deep detail about not only your own personal experiences and your diagnosis and your treatment, but the intricacies of living with metastatic breast cancer and and how we can come, how we can use that to our advantage, how it's a positive. And, and that I really appreciate. I do want to take a couple minutes on this call to open it up if anyone wants to ask any questions, um, whether it's through the Facebook chat or the chat here on Zoom, or if you want to unmute yourself if you're on Zoom and have some questions specifically for any of our panelists. This has been such a wonderful evening. And again, we can go on until midnight, but I turn into <laughs> a pumpkin. So thank you all for spending such an, a wonderful evening together. I know we all have kids and in, in life around this hour, but I appreciate it. But if anyone has any questions, please unmute yourself, introduce yourself, and and we'll just open it up. Or if we're a shy crowd, that's okay too. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. I know Tammy had a question. Tammy, are you still with us? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I was initially diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010, and I almost made it to 10 years. I got um, a second diagnosis January 2020, and they told me it was stage four. Um, and that was tough. Because, you know, like Abigail was saying, like, I didn't feel anything. I yeah. I felt totally fine until the lymph nodes swole up in my neck. Hmm. So I was just wondering because the doctor, he was like, and I'm a nurse. So, you know, I'm the type of patient where you can't come in the room for 10 minutes and go back out. No, we're going to be sitting there talking for a while. <laughs> And so he was saying, oh, we can treat this, but we can't cure it. But I just don't understand that part. Uh, there's no cure for cancer. Um, and honestly, the, the sad fact of the matter is uh, doctors are misleading early stage patients by telling them they're cured. Uh, the proper verbiage is no evidence of disease. Um, so, or, or for some of us with bone mets, it's no evidence of active disease. So once cancer has begun to uh, proliferate or divide out of control, there's no medical way to stop that. Um, what they do as best they can is they remove it. Um, and that's where you get your lumpectomies or your mastectomies. Um, but they know now, and this is where the liquid biopsies come from. As soon as you have cancer that begins to divide out of control, uh, there are circulating tumor cells that go into your blood. So I'm actually one of those people. Um, it did not, my cancer did not spread through my lymph nodes. It spread through my blood because um, I was no negative after my lumpectomy. Um, and that was also one of the reasons why it took a while for them to figure out that I was stage four. So 
a liquid biopsy, um, which they're getting better at understanding them, is actually testing the number of circulating tumor cells, and then they morph into something else. And I always forget that label once that they are um, uh, active. So those circulating tumor cells are in your blood as soon as you got diagnosed. It was just that it took them 10 years to find fertile ground. Um, the other thing with bone mets is that, um, and I was um, part of, of uh, I was a patient advocate advising on a trial about how uh, cancer cells that are um, activated, they came from breast cancer, that they hide in the bones and they can hide in the bones for decades. They lie dormant inside the bones. So I know that doctors are trying not to scare people, right? They say, you're cured, you're done, you never have to deal with this, put it in your rear view. And I totally understand why they do that because for the vast majority of people, that's the truth. They don't have to think about it anymore. But from a scientific biological perspective, um, once the cells get activated, once they turn on, once they begin to proliferate out of control, there's literally no medical or scientific way to stop them. Um, it's simply staying ahead of it and, and treating, um, treating the symptoms and treating as much as possible the fuel, right? They, they do multiple things to shut off their ability to continue to divide out of control and fuel is a big part of that. That's interesting what you're saying about them lying dormant in the bones. Um, I've heard that before. And I'm one of those early stagers with no evidence of disease. But my oncologist is, you need Zometa because that will strengthen the bones. And studies have shown that it will potentially help with the metastasis to the bones. Yes. And I'm like, you telling me it's my bones? Like, right? <laughs> like, what are you telling me? Right. So I, t I totally agree. I think that's really important to understand. Yes, there's no evidence of disease, but you go back to that initial comment we had. Once you're diagnosed, you're constantly managing. It's a constant, yeah. like trying to stay ahead of it, with it, in front of it, whatever you want to call it. Um, Allison, I would love to hear your opinion too, because I know we talked about early on the definition of met metastatic breast cancer and we named the bones and organs, but what does it mean when it's in your lymph nodes? Specifically, um, my lymph nodes were, were positive, but it did not go to the lymph nodes in my neck. It was all in the axilla area under my arms. But to mm -hmm. Tammy's point and like your experience, once it goes to the lymph nodes in the neck and other places, that's considered stage four? Yeah, I mean, that was my situation. So Tammy, I might have had a similar story as you had, but um, my, um, you know, the first manifestation of, of my metastatic cancer was in my neck. It was a lump um, on the left side over here. So, so that is typically metastatic cancer. If it's in the axillary armpit, that's not necessarily metastatic. That's still very close to the breast. Right. So, yeah. It's complicated. It, the whole thing is complicated. I, I think that yeah. it's a fascinating thing that I've learned with meeting different doctors and different scientists it, is that it's so complicated that the 10,000 scientists that go to San Antonio, because that's 10,000 people, scientists, doctors, et cetera, all of them are focused on breast cancer. They're from all over the world. And they're all, it's like the elephant, right? What does an elephant look like? The, you know, the blind people, like it's a rope, it's a wall, exactly. it's a 
right? Um, and so we go back to perspective and we go back to there's all these really smart people looking at all these different little questions and they're making progress. The, the amount of medications that have come out, I mean, mm-hmm. Ibrance, Letrozole, I'm sorry, Ibrance, Cascali, and Verzenio, that, those, those were a game changer. Perceptin for her two positive people, that was a game changer. The medication that Allison is on that I can never say right, that's a mm-hmm. game changer for triple negative yeah. people. And yeah. so we keep seeing Picray, that, I mean, that's a first in its class. The first drug that um, was designed to um, address this, this particular somatic mutation, the PIK3CA mutation that almost 80% of breast cancer havers have. Like This is a very prevalent mutation. So they, they are making so much progress. It's just that cancer itself is such a gigantic thing. And then you get into all the, the little nuances. So I am just blown away every time I go to a San Antonio or every time I talk to a scientist that there's all these really smart people trying to figure this out. And I want to make sure that they have the ability to, to figure to figure all of it out. Um, and the, the thing that I keep learning from scientists too is something like 98% of what they look at fails. And so it's a very small percentage that actually gets into clinical trials. And then even there, it's a very small percentage that actually ever get to people. It, it is this gigantic process that is so full of failure day in and day out, and yet they persist. Yes. And so that gives me hope that there's all these really smart people that are working really, really hard and I don't know how they don't give up. It's kind of amazing. To me. It is amazing. Yeah. Well, they well they um, keep going for us. Yes. I mean, they. I mean, a lot of them really do care, which is. I, mean, yes. I know some are some are in it for the money, but but a lot of them genuinely care about us. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, to sum up, how can our listeners get in touch with you, Allison? If someone wanted to connect with you and have follow up questions, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, I think. The- Probably easiest on Facebook. Um, you can find me under my name on Facebook and just send me a message or friend me. Excellent. And Abigail, too, I know you also write a blog and we're so thrilled that you write for our survivingbreastcancer.org, but you have your own blog and how can people find you? Probably my blog is the easiest. It's no half measures. Um, I know there's there there's a, a, a quote from a TV show, but I, I'm, I, it's named no half measures because I never do anything halfway. I always do everything. All. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on all the different, uh, social media channels and all of that, but my blog is the easiest um, way to find me. And I have a lot of resources on my blog. I have other bloggers listed there. I've got different medications over the counter medications that I've tried. I have a list of all of the different, um, complementary practitioners that I see, um, and explanations of why. So, um, I really try to put a lot out there, um, information for people to get a, uh, at least a foundational, at least a place to know what questions to ask, because that was my deal at the beginning. I didn't even know what I didn't know. Exactly. It's so much to know. You guys are amazing. I love speaking with you. I know. I just feel like we should just do this once a week because I, <laughs> I need the deep dive. I need the, the reinforcement of what we're going through, that it's, I don't even have the correct adjective. It's its real. It's concrete. There's actionable items we can take. There's, you know, this isn't one of those podcasts where we're laughing and going off and just like 
you know, go-getty girlfriends getting together. This is real friends getting together, talking about real concrete issues. And it almost has this like social justice feel to it of we're going out there, we're going to conquer the world because we have the tools to do that. And we're the patients that we're going to say, if you don't utilize me for clinical trials, if we don't talk about this and what I'm going through and my symptoms, my diagnosis and what I'm going through and you know, everything that we just talked about, if we don't voice that, then nothing's going to happen. And so you just gave us all of the language of taking this conversation forward. For that, I am forever grateful. So thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thank thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Abigail. I hope everyone listening really enjoyed tonight's conversation. Um, It was deep, challenging, honest, raw. It's what we bring, ladies. It's what we bring. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving. <laughs>